Take a Bible, find John, excuse me, 1 John chapter 4, 1 John 4. If you have a bulletin, there are notes you can track along with what we're going to talk about this morning. This is week 11 in our walk through 1 John. And at this point, if you've been around the last couple of weeks, you're familiar with this idea. John wrote this letter so that believers could have certainty about their relationship with Jesus. And that big overarching truth that governs everything in 1 John is found at the end of 1 John, chapter 5, verse 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He's not writing to convince us to believe or to beg us to believe or to encourage us to believe. In this letter, he assumes that we believe. And he's writing so that we would have confidence and assurance and certainty that by believing in Jesus, by having a relationship with the Father through the Son, that we truly have eternal life. And to give us that certainty... John sets before us tests. There's three of them in the book of 1 John, a moral test, a social test, and a Christological test. The question on the moral test is, do you keep God's commandments? The question on the social test is, do you love the brothers? Do you love other believers? The question in the Christological test is, do you believe and abide in the truth about Jesus? We're not taking these tests and hoping to pass these tests because we want to be good enough to earn our way with God. This is not sort of a works-based book. This is for people who already believe in Jesus. They've received God's grace, and they've trusted in who Jesus is and what he's accomplished, and now John wants us to have certainty, and we get certainty about our relationship with God by passing these tests. In this passage, John is circling back around, as he's prone to do, he's circling back around to the social test. It's actually the fourth time that John has referenced the social test. You see, uh, once in chapter 2, twice in chapter 3, again here in chapter 4, he just keeps coming back to this over and over and over again. Do you love the brothers? Do you love one another? Do you love each other? And all this love talk has led to John getting an interesting nickname, and Nicknames are funny things, right? You don't get to have any control over your own nickname most of the time. You don't get to say, hey, I'd like for you to call me this. People just sort of start calling you something, and that's your nickname. You don't really know when or where you're going to get a nickname. It's not something you really plan out. It just sort of happens, and usually it starts with some kind of inside joke, and it becomes uh, larger than life, so to speak. Here's an example of that. A couple of weeks ago, we were eating staff lunch at Rosa's on a Tuesday. Jake, our fearless worship leader, decided to bring his family along, and as we all sat down and got settled, Jake's wife, the good helpmate that she is, looking out for her husband, said, now, honey, you didn't get the medium salsa, did you? That's too hot for you. You only like mild salsa. And we just sort of looked at each other and we said, that sounds like a great nickname, mild salsa. And so we called Jake mild salsa. I don't know what it takes to get that changed in the bulletin, but we'll see if we can get that put in the bulletin the next couple of weeks. That's sort of how nicknames work. They just sort of happen. Jesus gave people nicknames. Jesus gave John, the author of this letter, a nickname. You remember the time when Jesus preached in a village and those people didn't want to respond 
to the gospel message. It was John and his brother James who said, Jesus, we ought to call down fire from heaven and destroy these people. And in sort of a a joking, teasing, gentle rebuke sort of way, sort of poking John, Jesus gave him a nickname, the Son of Thunder. And every time he said that, it was sort of Jesus' way, sarcastically, of saying, John, calm down. Calm down. That's kind of how nicknames work. So John, he keeps talking about this social test. He has a nickname. Church history has given John the nickname the Apostle of Love because of the many references to love in the Gospel of John and in the letter of 1 John. And I'll just admit, that's kind of a cheesy nickname. I don't know why it sounds so silly to me. I've read this for several weeks, and I have refrained from sharing with you the nickname Apostle of Love. I keep picturing a professional wrestler. I don't know why. I just picture, or then I think, no, no, it's not a professional wrestler. It's like a daytime game show host of some sort of dating game, matchmaking game. I don't know. It's just sort of a silly sounding nickname, but it's fitting because in this very short book, one of the shortest books in the Bible, there are more references to love than any other book in the New Testament. In the book of 1 John, you'll find some version of the Greek word agape 46 times. The second closest is the Gospel of John, which is over 20 chapters long, but still has fewer references to love than 1 John. And if you look at 1 John 4, 7 to 21, there are 29 references to love. 29 occurrences of some version of this Greek word agape. It's just over and over and over and over again. Hence we call John the apostle of love. That leads to the big idea. Should not be surprising. Believers are called to love each other. Why? Well, because God the Father loved us and he sent God the Son. That's sort of the overarching idea of 1 John 4, 7 to 12. You and I are called to love each other because God the Father loved us when we were unlovable and he did something about it. God the Father sent God the Son. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Look in your copy of the Scriptures, 1 John chapter 4. We're going to read verse 7 to 12. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be together and to worship. We thank you for those who are joining us online. We thank you for those who are in the early service. Father, I pray that as we take a few moments 
to sit under the authority of your word, that your word that is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword would pierce our hearts. Lord, that you would expose us as sinful people, that you would show us how great your love for us is. And Lord, that by the presence and the power of your spirit, that you would make us loving people. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to talk about Mark Twain. Mark Twain is one of the most fascinating Americans who has ever lived. And as I got to just reading about him and thinking about him, there's so many things I wanted to share with you, so many stories. I thought, this is a great story. I don't have time, so I'll let you chase some of these rabbits down. There's a fascinating story behind how a man born Samuel Clements became known as Mark Twain. You should look it up. It's fascinating. There's a fascinating story about a connection that Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, had in his birth and his death with Halley's Comet. There's a fascinating story about how Mark Twain went bankrupt and then how he amassed enough of a fortune to go ahead and pay his creditors off anyways, even after he declared bankruptcy. Just lived an absolutely fascinating life. A lot of people remember him as an author. In fact, a lot of people say he's one of the great American authors. Many other authors say that he is the great American author. Some have gone so far as to say that the stories he tells about Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer contain everything else that has ever been written by an American novelist. It's all there in those books somewhere. So we remember him as a great author. We also remember him, this is sort of strange, as a comedian. He's sometimes called the greatest humorist the United States has ever produced. And I know he doesn't look like he's all laughs in that picture, but he really was a funny guy in his life. In addition to writing books, he gave lectures. And you say, well, that doesn't sound very funny. Well, these lectures weren't like boring lectures. They were basically stand-up comedy routines. So he would book a, a venue in a town, and they would sell tickets. People would fill these lecture halls. They wanted to hear this famous author. They'd read all his books. They wanted to hear what he had to say. So he'd come into a packed lecture hall, and he'd get up on the platform, and he would begin speaking, and he would act very nervous. And he understood, as he had this room full of people, that repetition was a powerful way to make them laugh. In fact, he said this about repetition. He said, it's a mighty power in the domain of humor. If frequently used, nearly any precisely worded and unchanged formula will eventually compel laughter if it be gravely and earnestly repeated at intervals of five or six times. This is basically every American sitcom. They start with an idea. You don't even know that's what's going to be funny in the episode, but it kind of keeps coming up all the way through the episode, and by the end of it, you think it's funny. It's repetition. This is what Twain would do. He'd have a room full of people. He'd stand up, and he'd start to tell them a story. He said, I would pick the most boring story possible. And he would tell the story in slow, monotone voice. He would try to be as boring as possible. And the people in the room would look at Twain the way you're looking at me. And they would be shocked. And no one would laugh and it would be completely silent, just the crickets. And Twain would, he'd really act it up. He would act embarrassed. 
he would sort of shuffle around and wring his hands. And then he'd compose himself and he'd do the exact same thing again. Same story, monotone, no inflection, completely the same. He'd just repeat what he just said. And Twain said the first time people were surprised and confused. The second time people were starting to get angry. I mean, they paid to come listen to him. They wanted something interesting, something entertaining, and all he's doing is telling this same boring story twice. People are sort of restless and irritated. He'd pause. Round three, same thing. Twain said it was usually, not always, but usually the third telling of the story where someone on the front row would get it, that it was a joke. He wouldn't stop. He'd just keep telling the same story, completely monotone. But the laughter would start to build in the room. Have you ever been in a room like that? One person gets the giggles. Second person gets the giggles. Then that one person gets the giggles, and you're laughing not at what they're laughing at. You're just laughing at them. Twain said it would happen like this. At the end of a minute, the laughter was as universal and thunderously noisy as a tempest. People were laughing so hard it sounded like a thunderstorm in the room all because he used repetition. Listen, Mark Twain understood repetition is a powerful thing to make people laugh. The apostle John understood that repetition is a powerful thing if you want to teach people about God. He uses repetition all the way through the book. There's only three tests. He covers them over and over and over again. When you read through 1 John, okay, I know you're not going to say this at church, but this is what you think. John, you already said that. You already talked about that. I get it. Keep God's commands, love my neighbor, believe the truth about Jesus. How many times do you have to say it? Well, he keeps saying it. He keeps coming back to it over and over and over again. And in particular, in this letter, he keeps talking about love 46 times He uses some version of the Greek word agape over and over and over and over again. And the repetition eventually gets through to dense people like me. And I say, oh, I think this is important. I think I'm supposed to get this and understand this and think about this and wrestle with this. That's what John is doing for us this morning. Here's the question. Why did John think it was so important? For believers to show sacrificial love to each other. It's the fourth time he's brought this up in a very short book. Why was it so important to John? I'm going to give you three reasons. Number one, love comes from God. That's essentially word for word what John himself says in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, right? Social test, love each other, for love is from God. Love is from God. And in the rest of verse 7 and 8, he tells us all sorts of things that we need to know about what does it mean love comes from God. This is what he says. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Let's just break this down and think about what does it mean that love comes from God? Number one, it means, well, God is love. God is love. That is a central truth about the character, the person, the nature of God that you and I have got to understand. Any conception or idea of God that doesn't include the idea that he is love is entirely illegitimate. You'll hear that. 
in churches. Churches that only talk about how angry God is. They're not preaching the truth about who God is. You'll hear that in other world religions. They'll say lots of things about God that the Bible actually says, but they don't have this belief, this confidence that God is love. And John's telling us this is a non-negotiable truth about God that you've got to understand. God is love. Unfortunately, in the United States, too often, we have reduced God down to this one attribute. And we've ended up saying, this is all that you really need to know about God, is that he's loving. Everything else is just sort of bonus points. Listen, John is not, he is not saying this is the only thing that God is. He's not saying this is the only thing that you need to know about God. He is saying this is one thing you've got to know about God. It's not the only thing. First John chapter 1, he says God is light. He's talking about God's holiness. It's not the only thing that you need to know about God, but it's one thing you've got to know. He's light. John chapter 4, Gospel of John chapter 4. Jesus told a woman from Samaria that God was spirit. God is spirit. If you're going to worship him, you worship in spirit and in truth. It's not the only thing that you need to know about God, but it is one thing that you've got to know about God. God is love. It makes sense when you think about the Trinity. We've talked about the Trinity almost every week. From eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living together in a relationship of love. The Father loving the Son and the Spirit, and the Son loving the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit loving the Father and the Son. This is something inherent to who God is. God didn't become loving when you and I showed up on the scene. He is love. It is a non-negotiable part of his character. So John mentions that. He also talks about new birth, regeneration, and he says this, being born again makes us love. When you experience new birth, it makes you a loving person. It turns you into the kind of person who loves God and loves others. John says this in verse 7, beloved, let us love one another. Love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God. If you find a person who is truly, genuinely loving towards others, it's because that person has been born of God. They've been born again. When you're born into God's family, you begin to take on the family likeness. You begin to look more and more like God. And this likeness grows over time. The closer you grow to God, the more loving that you become. The more you know God in a relational way, the more loving you become. So John talks about this. He says, knowing God leads to love. When you know God, the result is that you are a loving person. I just want you to listen to what he says in verse 8. People try to wiggle out from under this a lot of different ways. Just listen to what he says. Anyone who does not love does not know God. You find a person, even if that person is in a church on Sunday morning, and they're not a loving person, It doesn't matter how much they know about God. John says they don't actually know God. You can know all sorts of things about God and not be a loving person. You can ace every systematic theology exam on the planet and still not know 
God. You can have lots of encyclopedic, factual knowledge about who God is and still not know Him. But when you know Him in a relational, personal way, you become a loving person. That's what John says in verse 7 and verse 8. In all this, he's telling us love is from God. Love is from God. It's one of the reasons it's so important that we love each other. Love is from God. Here's a second reason it's important that we love each other. God's love is seen in Jesus. We see God's love on display in the person, in the work of Jesus. Look at 1 John 4, 9, 10, and 11. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If I just asked you to get real practical and real concrete, and I said, look, we're talking about love. And I said, I need to, I need to understand love. Not just God's love, but just the idea of love. I need something visual. I need something concrete, something I could wrap my arms around. There would be people who would say, well, how about a fairy tale? Once upon a time, there was a prince and a princess, and they loved each other, and Here's how they overcame the bad guys and they lived happily ever after. It's a love story. And some of you would say, no, 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 be done with the fairy tales. Look at this romantic comedy I watched on Netflix. There's a guy and a gal and it's just the sweetest little love story and they get together at the end against all odds and Hallmark throws Christmas in there for good measure and it's just a, a warm, fuzzy love story. That, that's how you can latch on to it. Some of you would say, no, 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 no. No fairy tales, no, no Hallmark, no Netflix. Some of you would point to real people and you'd say, look at, look at this person. Look at these people maybe who have been married for 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, 60 years. That's, that's love. That's a, a true picture of love. If you're a Christian and I say to you, give me something concrete, something I can wrap my arms around to understand love. If you're a Christian, what you say is, 2,000 years ago, there was a poor Jewish carpenter who was executed shamefully as a common criminal outside of Jerusalem. They hung him naked on a Roman cross and killed him. That is where you see and understand love. It's a very unlikely place to point when you're trying to teach somebody about love. It's very counterintuitive. You say, no, that's embarrassment, that's defeat, that's death, that's ugliness, that's darkness. That's not love. But John says, that's where you look. If you want to understand love, you look to the cross. You know, we talked about nicknames. John had a lot of them. He was called uh, the son of thunder, sons of thunder with his brother James. He's called the Apostle of Love. A few weeks ago, I told you that he was called the Theologian. And there's an ancient manuscript of the book of Revelation, which John wrote. And out in the margin, there's a note, and it says, written by the Theologian, John. 
He's a theologian. He's always teaching us about God. He's always teaching us about Jesus. Notice what he says about Jesus here. It's really important. First of all, he says Jesus is God's only son. It's his only son. Verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son. The Greek word in verse 9 is the Greek word monogenes. Sometimes in our Bibles, it's translated only begotten. And let's be honest, in conversation you've had with people that didn't involve church or the Bible, you haven't used the word begotten in a long time. We don't use that word very much. So we read only begotten, and we think, well, what does that mean? What's the idea there? The idea is that Jesus is the only son. He's the unique son. He's the answer to the question that we just sang about. Is anyone worthy? Anyone. Is there one person who's worthy? Is anyone whole and complete? Is there anyone who can take the scroll and break the seals? Anyone. And the answer is there's one. Jesus, the only son, the unique son. Here's some references. You can look these up. This same Greek word shows up other places in the Bible. Luke chapter 7, there's a widow in the village of Nain, and her only son dies. She had one son. He died. Only son. Luke chapter 8, you meet a man named Jairus. He had one daughter. She died. His only daughter. One of a kind. Luke chapter 9, there's a man who comes to Jesus. He has one son, and he's afflicted. He's oppressed by a demon. And he comes to Jesus and he says, I need you to help my only son. You can find it in Hebrews chapter 11. It talks about Abraham offering his only son, his unique son Isaac, which is interesting because Abraham had another son. But Isaac was the unique son, the son of the promise, one of a kind. That's what John is saying here. God sent his only unique son, the monogenes. There is no one like Jesus in all of the universe. He is completely and utterly unique. And John says Jesus was sent into the world. It's a remarkable thought. There's no accident that we celebrate Christmas. There was purpose behind it. There was intention behind it. The Father sent the Son. God sent his only Son into the world. Sent him into the world. It wasn't because he was lonely. I mean, my goodness, from eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit had a relationship with each other. He wasn't lonely. It was because he loved us when we were unlovable. He sent his Son into the world, into the cosmos. We've seen that in 1 John. Into the fallen mass of humanity that stand in defiance to God and in opposition to God. The Father sent his only son into enemy territory. Not to fight, not to destroy the opposition. Remarkably, he sent him to die for the opposition, to die for his enemies. That's the third thing John tells us. Jesus came to die that we might live. He came to die that we might live. There's a word In this passage in verse 10, propitiation. If you're reading the NIV, it's the word atoning sacrifice. 
That word has the idea that Jesus dies in our place. He dies as a substitute. His death is a sacrifice that satisfies God's anger towards our sin and allows us to live even though we deserve to die. That's why the Father sent his only Son into the world. If you've never believed that, believe it. If you've never agreed with God about your sin, 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, we agree with God about our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That promise is grounded on the fact that God the Father loved you when you were unlovable and sent God the Son to die so that you could live. Believe it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. You believe it. When you believe it, you have eternal life. We've referenced John Stott multiple times. Reference him once this morning. He says, The historical manifestation of God's love in Christ not only assures us of his love for us, but lays on us the obligation to love one another. Look, that's verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's the big idea of what we're talking about. This is the love that God has showed you. It's from God. It's seen in Jesus. And it means that we ought to be loving people. Stott says, No one who has been to the cross and seen God's immeasurable and unmerited love displayed there can go back to a life of selfishness. God's love changes us. It transforms us. And that brings us to the last thing I want you to see. Why is it so important that we love each other? Here's the third reason. God's love is perfected when we love each other. God's love is perfected when we love each other. Look at verse 12. John says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. No one has seen God. That's true. You say, what about all those Old Testament stories, all those appearances of God, those theophanies and those Christophanies? What about all those stories? John understood those stories. He'd read them. He knew about them. And John understood that those were mediated experiences of God's presence. They weren't full manifestations of the glory and the majesty of God. They were mediated in different ways. Even Isaiah in the temple, when he catches a vision of the Lord exalted and on his throne, says that the temple is filled with smoke. There's this barrier between him and the Lord. No one has seen God. What have we seen? Well, we sang earlier that we've seen a broken world. We've seen the shadow of sin spread in this world. We've seen sickness. We've seen pain and loss. We've seen division and anger and hatred. We've seen death. We've seen suffering that seems very needless from our perspective. No one has seen God, but we've seen all that stuff. And when you don't see God and you see all that stuff, you're left to wrestle with certain questions. You're left to wrestle with the question, God, are you there? Are you there at all? God, are you, are you really a loving God? 
I mean, I see all of this stuff. Are you really a loving God? And if you are there and you are a loving God, what in the world is going on in the world? John comes alongside us, not to scold us, not to shame us, not to embarrass us. He comes alongside us as a pastor and he says, listen, he's there and he's loving. He doesn't try to explain every mystery of the universe, but he says he's there and he's loving. And the key to you and I knowing this, verse 12, if we love one another. What happens when God's people love one another? Verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us. He's there. He's present. You may not be able to see him with your eyes, but you look at God's people loving each other and you say, God is there. He's in the midst of those people. He's with those people. You know it. And this is a remarkable thought. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. It's strange to think that God's love needs to be perfected. I mean, we'd be inclined to think it's already perfect. There's this sense in which the love the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have within the Trinity is so great that it overflows to people created in His image. Sinful people, people like you and me, people who don't love God. John says, Our definition of love is not that we loved him, it's that he loved us. So great was this love that exists within the Godhead. It overflowed to undeserving sinners, and it moved the Father to send his only Son into the world to die that we might live. And not just to make us alive instead of dead, but to make us loving people. That's how God's love is perfected or literally completed. I'll tell you one more story as we think about the power of repetition. 1967, the European Broadcasting Union teamed up with the BBC. They produced a television program called Our World. Uh, that was the graphics department final result in 1967. We would expect a little bit more today, but that was pretty good for 1967. This was, this TV production they came up with, it was the first ever worldwide, global, live, satellite television event. Meaning, the first time ever, 1967, that people all over the world were literally watching the exact same thing at the exact same time. A record-shattering, for that day, a record-shattering 400 million people tuned in to watch this television program. There was all sorts of silly stuff on there. They talked about uh, different places in the world and different things going on in the world, but they wanted it to really end on a bang. The most popular band in the world at that time was the Beatles. The BBC was involved, and so the BBC said, hey, Paul, John, the guys, we want you to end the program. It's got to be good. And so McCartney and Lennon sat down and they said, look, this is a big deal. 400 million people are going to watch this thing. First time ever, global, the entire world on satellite. We can't just do something we've done before. We've got to do something new. We've got to write a new song. And so they sat down, they wrote a brand new song, and they performed it live the first time anyone ever heard it on this program, 1967. It was June 25th. And the song that they wrote and performed was 
all you need is love. Now, I'm not going to read you the lyrics. It's pretty basic. You ready? All you need is love. Love is all you need. That's about it. Just sing it over and over and over again. And they thought, this will be great. This is what we want to share with the entire world. I don't know that a group of people have ever been so close to the truth and so far from the truth at the exact same time. I mean, what they're singing about is sort of a laissez-faire, anything goes, just all agree to get along and go along, whatever you want to do is okay, hippy-dippy crazy stuff, like just love. Sort of a, a meaningless, empty, vacuous word. We just love each other. Just get together and love each other. That's all you need. You don't need anything else. John, the apostle, would come alongside and say, you need more than that. Here's what you need. You need the God who defines love, who is love. And you need his only son, the father's only son, who was sent into this world to die so that you could live and so that you could become a loving person. If that's the kind of love you're talking about, then absolutely. All you need is love, and love is all you need. If it's the empty, meaningless type of love the world celebrates, you need way more than that. But if it's love as God defines it, if it's love as God has shown it to us at the cross, and it's lo- if it's love as God is making us into loving people, then absolutely 100% yes, It's all you need.